Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Hello again, Hireside Chatters. Living life from sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and I have heard so many of the brightest minds say that one of the most important things you can do is dedicate some attention to truly developing your philosophy, your metaphysics, and your worldview. Many modern people do not take the time to do this. They bumble around, get dragged through an authoritarian school system, and end up pushed into a cog-in-the-wheel career with very little time dedicated to what they want to do, thinking about their calling or engaging with the rites of passage and investigation the world feels designed for. Now, you might think this was intentionally weeded out of culture, or maybe it was just overlooked in overzealous capitalist pursuits. But for the individual to find true meaning and fulfillment, it is a journey worth taking. And as I've tried on several philosophical hats, the most interesting ones I've found are cultivated from a deep observation of nature or handed down from almost mythical figures of the deep past. Well, the rabbit hole that is the art and science of alchemy kind of ends up meeting both of those criteria, and today's very learned guest, Brian Cote Noir, is here to talk about it. Brian himself is an alchemist, artist, and award-winning filmmaker. He was a contributor to Frater Albertus's Para-Alchemy and has presented workshops and seminars around the world on various aspects of alchemical theory and practice. He is the author of Practical Alchemy, Alchemy, the Poetry of Matter, and translator of The Emerald Tablet. His work can be found at caprepress.com, and it's a real pleasure to have him here, so let's do the damn thing. The Alchemical Authority and Thrice Great Guide to the Great Work, Brian Cote Noir, welcome to the higher side. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. It's good to be here. I don't know about thrice great, but um, I'll just go with okay. <laughs> you know, once okay. Yes, so, fair enough. Yeah, great to be here. Yes, this is going to be a lot of fun. Alchemists and magic practitioners are some of my favorite guests. These folks who have just had this deep understanding of the natural world and the structure of reality, along with the engagement of strange mechanisms that are eternally baked into the reality cake, but so few people today even acknowledge. It's just really interesting stuff to specialize in in today's world. And it seems like no matter how deep you go, there's always more to learn. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, that's just the nature of life in general. There's always more to learn. There's always more to 
kind of dig into, go another layer down and whatever it is you do, right? Yes. Yeah, which makes the irony of so many people not really going beyond the surface level that much more ironic. But your bio says you've been studying alchemy for over 45 years, and I just have so much respect for that. Why did this grab you like it did? What do you find so special about it with all the other things in the world a person could dedicate themselves to? It's an unhealthy obsession. <laughs> it's, um, it started actually very young. And it was just an absolute curiosity about things. The thing with alchemy, as anybody who's ever done any little bit of reading on it beyond the works of Carl Jung, is that you start to realize that as a study, it encompasses the processes of creation. And so right there, it touches on everything. It just can't help not to touch on everything. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the things that really drew me to it as a kid, actually. I mean, I think as children, we're all very naturally curious, natural scientists in a way. And that was part of it for me. I was actually, as a kid, very interested in the sciences. Did a lot of, just as kids do, science kid stuff, right? At the same time, I really liked art, drawing, things like this, and had a certain degree of ability with it as did the rest of my family actually had very good ability in this. So I was always interested in the two. And it was one day I had gotten my adult library card as a lot earlier. And it was just, I used to go roam the stacks in the local public library. And I came across this book on alchemy. And to be very honest, as I always say, it really irritated me. <laughs> and when I think back on it, I think part of that irritation was is that it was about both things. It was about kind of art. And then at the same time, it seemed to be science. And then they had these incredible images. And out of irritation, I kept going back to it. And then just kept going back to it. And then I was kind of hooked. So there's a bookstore in New York City, or at the time anyway, called Weiser's Bookstores. And it's the oldest in the U.S., oldest occult bookstore. It closed recently, but it's online. And actually, they published my book, the book we're talking about, Practical Alchemy. And I went there for the first time in about 15, 16, and saw the writings of Paracelsus. And I just thought, okay, this is the real deal. Things I was reading were more histories, and it was interesting, but I wanted to read an alchemist. (laughs) And uh, I picked a hell of a place to start. So I finally earned enough money, scrounged enough money over the next few years and put my $35 down and got the two volumes. And it's like reading concrete. But I kept at it and then just got really interested. And then started to attempt to do some replication of some experiments. And then in 76, I was in 74, 75, I was working at Weiser's bookstore. (laughs) How could I not? And Frate Albertus, published his work, The Alchemist's Handbook, and that was published in 76. So I had seen, like working at Weiser's, sort of the galley proofs of that, photocopied it quietly and snuck it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a very important work. This is a work that really pretty much, 
I would say there was a trend. There was a small circle, both in the U.S., mostly in Europe, that was practicing and doing actual plant and mineral and metal work. But this was the book that really gave it the impetus, Frater Albertus's uh, Alchemist's Handbook. Mm-hmm. And it's all about practical alchemy. And that was it. I then really started getting very serious about it, started doing more experiments, and then went back to college after a few years, after I did my time at Weiser University, as somebody once called it, because <laughs> they had a basement there. And in that basement was a collection of like just used esoteric occult books going back for whatever. It, it was Library of Alexandria underground. It was amazing. <laughs> so people used to try to get work there just to be able to go and read. So anyhow, I went on and then just really, you know, studied chemistry, and then just kind of went on and continued doing my own research. And then eventually, what I do with my work is I'll do concrete work on one level or another, inner work as well. And then when I feel I've come to an insight on something or something that could be, as I call it, useful, and I think of useful as, I wish I had this in my hands when I was 17, when I was really getting seriously started. And so that's what I do. Periodically, I will write some things and put them out. (laughs) And it's for the idea of stimulating others to continue on with this work. It's all usually very practical, even if it's inner work. And like I'm thinking right now, not so much of the Weiser's book, Practical Alchemy. The other work I do is zines or zines. And what I do with those is I have, as I do my work and research in alchemy, you come across all these very interesting side topics that you just go, that is too cool, all right? So you start a file folder on it. Every time you come across a reference to this thing, you put it in there. And there are a few of them, like I know I will never do a deep research on it. I just don't have the time in my life. But at the same time, There's enough there that's like really interesting that maybe somebody else will go do something. So I lay out the questions, lay out the problems, provide a bibliography, some thoughts of my own, maybe what I would do with it. And that's how the zines operate. It's a major cut and paste job kind of of a thing. Yes, I definitely plan to ask you about some of the content of those zines from the golem to the hermunculus, but let's lay a good alchemical base first because that is the major topic at hand. But, you know, when I first started learning about alchemy, I did not have a lot of patience or respect for the spiritual side of things. I wanted to hear stories of minerals being transformed and ascended masters handing over the keys to matter, the unlocking of substances that defy conventional logic, and there is all that, but it's the spirituality and philosophy that should be the scaffolding that gets a person to that other stuff. What would you say is at the heart of that spirituality or philosophy that is mostly missing from the modern world? Well, that goes right to the heart of what my research and work is about. So let me define how I use the term alchemy. So we're all on the same page. And this is something kind of developed out of writings from Paracelsus, other writers who have defined it as well. And so alchemy is the art and science of bringing something to its final completion, right? Or its final perfection. And you can break this down, right? 
So an art and a science, it's exactly that. It's like medicine in that way. There's things that are very practical, scientific. You do this, you get this result. That's just the nature of what you're dealing with. The art aspect, like medicine, is, well, yeah, sometimes that does happen. But there are other elements of medicine that come into play. And so this is also true of alchemy. Alchemy is about investigating sort of the universe, inner and outer, using all ways of knowing. It doesn't say, oh, well, we don't use intuition. We don't use logic. We just kind of, you know, no. (laughs) All channels are open. And you try to work with all channels. This gives you a multi-perspective view of something, contradictory sometimes, perhaps. But that's the challenge, is then to resolve those contradictions in a way so that you end up with something that is close to a more, I guess, holistic image of this. So this is where it's the art and the science, right? Early alchemy, some of the earliest texts translated from the Arabic, It's exactly this. As the teacher is teaching the student, he says, pay attention to what I am using. I will name them for you and I will show them to you so there's no mistake about what we are using. And then watch what I do. And if you do what I do, you will get what I get. Right there is the basis of science. Science has a few more things. Alchemy has a few more other things. But that attitude of dealing with the material world like that of reproducibility, a consistency of like, if you use this and do this process, this is what happens. That's the science aspect. So alchemy uses all these different ways of coming to an understanding of the methods and flow of creation. Mm. Okay. So then it's this idea of bringing something. So what is that something? Traditional alchemy, when we think of it as changing lead into gold, is exactly that lead into gold. In the alchemical worldview, the metals were one thing, and they existed on a spectrum of imperfection to perfection. Lead being imperfect, gold being the most perfect. Nothing touches gold. Well, almost nothing touches gold. But everything touches all the other metals. They corrode, they corrupt, they turn into salt, all these things except gold. So this was the idea that lead was gold, but just in an unripe form. And if you could understand the flow and how creation worked, how nature worked, by copying that, reproducing it, you could bring the imperfect to the perfect. And then the same thing if you're speaking of, let's say, in a Judeo-Christian Islamic concept of soul and God and deity, it's a perfection of the soul, or the ascent of the soul to the one. And that Alchemy is exactly that. So here's where I start to make a distinction. There's a use of spiritual alchemy that gets shaded into Jungian psychology and his use of alchemy, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about that. I want to talk about another thing that goes a little bit further back to more of a Greco-Roman approach to it, also Islamic, because they drew from it, that also migrates into the West. The thing with a Jungian approach is it's absolutely correct because what it's taking as its matter and the material is the human psyche, right? So since alchemy says, well, the laws of creation, how things unfold, how things flow, it's the same throughout the universe. It's just a question of scale, scope, matter, material, but all those laws hold. 
So what Jung did is he discovered that, but he applied it to the human psyche for healing, right? And this is wonderful, but that's not the full picture of alchemy. And it's not the full picture of an inner alchemy, okay? So let me back up here. And I'd like to unfold that a little bit or unpack that a little bit. How it was seen in sort of a Greco-Roman context where the material work actually activates a sort of an inner sensibility, right, of this. And the way it was expressed that and through the ideas of geometry, actually. In Greco-Roman philosophical practices, geometry was a purification process. It was a process that would purify your inner eye. And it's true because if you do external geometry, after a point, you don't need to do it. You can see it with your inner eye. And that's what they're talking about. They're talking about how do you activate that inner vision that we all are born with. And this is what it says in some of the Neoplatonic texts. It says, here you have this vision that people seldom use, but we all have. And it's a question of developing it. So the way they would do this, and you'll see where the parallel is with alchemy in a moment, but I want to use this as a very clear-cut example because it's something we all know having gone through high school. And you kind of wonder, why didn't they teach geometry this way? But what it does is you move that material practice from the outside, right? Compass, straight edge, all these kind of things, triangle geometry comes in the measurement of the earth, comes from surveying. This idea of surveying the land in Egypt is where geometry arises from. But then there becomes an inner practice as these forms, triangles, squares, circles, are abstracted and we can see these in our heads, right? And this is the other thing about geometrical objects is that they have this odd dual reality being not real, but very concrete. They only do certain things or won't do other things, right? If I say equilateral triangle to you, the only variation in anybody's mind is going to be size. But if you have nothing to compare it to, they're pretty much all the same size anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's a very concrete object, right? Mm -hmm. So once you start to do, say, geometric problems, you're able to do it in your head. Now, the thing that happens, and this is also out of the Greco-Roman tradition, known as a dream incubation, as you would, for medicine, if someone sick would go into a temple, pray to the god, ask the god a question, sleep, the god would appear in the dream with an oracle, an answer, a cure, or something. So this was used, and if you read alchemical texts, Greco-Roman ones, they'll talk about this. Repeating a process, saying these things, I went to sleep. And in my dream, I saw. And this is the process. So what starts to happen is, and we all know this, right? Because we all have had this experience. What you work on during the day shows up in your dreams. So now what happens is, this is the third stage that happens, right? You've now moved the geometry from the outer world into the inner, right? Where you're imagining it in your head. The next thing that starts to happen is, these things start to show up in your dreams, and that's where it gets interesting, because <laughs> then there's a whole other world that starts to open up that's not just problem solving the geometric problem. Other characters show up that start indicating different things. This is a type of process that they're talking about. This is how the practical 
brings about the inner, but they both feed each other. So alchemy in the Greco-Roman sense was working on these material processes. And if you read the formulas, they're actually doable. And you will go through the stages they describe. And if you have a philosophical framework of ascent, of perfecting the soul at the same time, this stuff moves in. You start thinking about it in your head. How can I do this? How does that visualize? And then it starts to show up in the dreams. And then eventually you wake up in the dream in the midst of one of these things. And this is what they refer to as this process of ascent from the concrete to the abstract to a channel that opens up to the authentic. You may learn things, you may come to understanding of things that are that you can then bring back out into the concrete world to solve the problem in the laboratory, in your personal lives, if you're dealing with the psychology. These types of things you'll read about in the sciences where someone has been working on a problem and then finally in a dream an answer comes to them that they then go to the lab and check and yes, that's the answer. It's not like this comes out of nowhere. You've been prepping. Right? You've been feeding the mind. And then we're starting to use that inner sight that we have all been given, I think, as Plotinus, uh, Neoplatonic philosopher, said. Mm. And you'll find these, where you find the inner work mentioned is, if you read an alchemical text, Greco-Roman, Arabic, Islamic, they won't give you the practices there, but they'll refer to them as an understood thing. For instance, in the Corpus Hermeticum, this is the writings of Hermes Trismegistus, dealing with the ascent, the soul, all these other things. He is the author of the Emerald Tablet, one of the key texts, 13 lines of poetry that is the key text of alchemy. So within the Corpus Hermeticum, you will find the inner practices, right? Mm -hmm. You'll find the inner practices written. In the alchemical texts, They'll just allude to them with the one line. But if you know what that one line is, you know what the rest they're talking about. So I don't have the book here to pull right out of thing, but let me see if I can remember part of what it is. In the Corpus Hermeticum, Hermes, or the deity, the one, is teaching Tot, the sun. And there's this dialogue. And he's like, what happens? Do I have things that are, are lethal to my soul, essentially, is what the gist of the question is. How do I get out of this mess I'm in? Mm -hmm. And Hermes answers to him, there are 12 fatalities. And the way you deal with this is you calm your body, you silence the mind, and he goes through these steps. And this is really, you know, like Buddhist meditation, essentially, is what he's going through, right? You know, turn the senses inward, silence, start, slow down, turn inward. Listen to that voice that you could hardly hear, but you yearn to, this type of thing. And then in the alchemical text, there's a dialogue between Zosimos and his partner, Theosabia, where they're talking about an alchemical problem. And she's asking, it's like, you know, well, how do I use this tincture? What happens with this? And he goes, well, follow the twelve. And right before that, there's a quote from Hermes and afterwards. So you know what this is embedded in because, well, they're Hermetists. So this is who they're referencing. So this is where you'll find it. You won't find like an alchemical text that will say, well, sit down, do this, do that, do that. 
And you won't even find it so explicitly in the Hermetic or the Gnostic texts, although you will find it referred to or described in a way, like I just did. So that's basically how this whole material spiritual thing interacts. It's more theurgic in that sense, where you use matter as a support for the ascent of the soul. Mm. Where the Neoplatonists were doing external rituals, creating statues, opening up channels between the statues and the soul, animating it with the spirit of the god, that's alchemy. Because really, Iamblichus is a Neoplatonic philosopher, wrote on the mysteries, and it's a polemic explaining the necessity for the use of matter why we do ritual, why we do talismans, why we make statues. And there's a whole section in there where he talks about calling the soul or the spirit of the god into the statue. And what's really interesting is, and as it goes on towards the end of the work, he goes, well, you know, well, of course, the gods never descend to us. We ascend to them. And then in another work by another Neoplatonist, he goes, well, you know, by statue, we're talking about the geometry of the inner soul. Huh. And so we're following proportions as we build that statue. Ah. So they're talking of the inner statue that's being built, but you will make an outer statue because it's a prop. Interesting. Kind of like cathedral making, too. No, not kind of. Exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what the process is. It's like iconography. If you go and you go to an icon studio, an actual icon studio attached to an Orthodox Christian church, you will hear the same speech that using this matter, using this thing to depict these stories, you are activating those stories in yourself because an icon is a mirror that shows the state of the icon writer, but it's also a window of what you're trying to achieve in your spiritual life and what you end up making, well, shows you the difference. But this is that idea. It's like you're working externally, and which is why also in terms of the icons and the whole iconoclastic controversy in the 8th century was, are these idols or are these props, channels like prayer or something, but more material, something for our minds to rest on? Not that we're worshiping them, but opening up a channel to the divine. Wow. And this is alchemy in its inner sense and outer sense. And this is what gets missed, right? Because we take, and again, I'm not putting this down, the Jungian writings on it have become so strong that that becomes the understanding of what alchemy is. And he's absolutely right. That's the thing. It's like, why? Well, it's like, oh, you're down on, no, 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 I'm not. He's one of my heroes. <laughs> I mean, the guy's, a, he's a psychonaut, right? If you've ever taken a look or read the Red Book, this is somebody, right, Victorian. I mean, this is the kind of thing you have to remember. Victorian mind, right, on the edge, right? No tradition of this really. This guy's about to have, I mean, he's having breakdowns. He's cutting through and he keeps on pushing. Yeah. Comes back with this fuller vision of things and a different understanding of the psyche and then structures it around you know, the stories we tell surrounding alchemy. And this is a very useful framework because alchemy claims that it's describing the creation of the universe. Right. So just to kind of round this out into like a very contemporary, easygoing practice, because alchemy deals with any aspect of creation, you don't actually have to do laboratory alchemy to do this process. 
As long as you're doing a creative act or a creative process, according to alchemy, you're engaging in those laws. And if you're engaging in those laws, they can also be used to turn to the inward and the outward unification, this kind of thing, as an inner outer thing. So one can read and study certain alchemical texts and get quite a bit out of them for one's own work. And it's not saying, oh, well, this is that, and it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence, but you'll start to understand the processes of creation that can enhance and deepen your own practice, especially if you're using the creation as a practice for inner ascent, right? If you have a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. You could use martial arts for this as they do, right? Deep meditation, but physical. This is where I feel my work is, is to kind of bring this aspect out. And the Practical Alchemy, the book that we're purportedly talking about, um, <laughs> uh, is the first stage of this. This is the outside. This is the concrete. This gets us all on the same page for some basic theory, the basic outline, uh, where you can find some of the contacts for the inner work, but then a very simple, practical, fundamental, Here's what you do to get started. Start with herbs. Here's how you can work. You can make this tincture. It has these benefits. And then the second book is more about this material I was just talking about. But I, you can't get to that one. I mean, you can. You could read the second book, Alchemy, the Poetry of Matter. It's a standalone, and you could be an absolute beginner and read it. But these two are part of a larger project I'm calling Alchemy, Poetry of Matter. And it deals with the concrete, the abstract, and the authentic. So concrete and abstract are done. I'm working on the third. <laughs> I'm working on the third now. So, Well, I really love this stuff. And I like that part where you mention alchemy, the poetry of matter. It's a good analogy. As you've said, a poet takes words from a dictionary and arranges them into something more, much as an alchemist does with matter. And I just think that's really interesting. And I've heard you say in other interviews that Robert Allen Bartlett, who wrote the foreword of the book, is a major VIP of modern alchemists. And the modern state of alchemy is definitely something I wanted to ask you about, because I, I love the history, but it is what is often most discussed, way more than the modern. Right. And I'm just curious, how vibrant is it these days? It seems like a lot of people who walk this path do it in isolation, but maybe you can help us get a feel for the state of modern mineral alchemy. Is it growing? Is it shrinking? Are the boundaries still being pushed? What can you tell us in that regard? I actually think it's very dynamic. I don't know how extensive, I couldn't give you numbers of how many people are doing what and things like this, but just your point that we tend to be solitary creatures and don't get out much is dead on. <laughs> Very <laughs> underground. Mean, it does not by any other thing. I think it's just the personalities that are drawn to this and can stay with it, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. That said, though, I do attend conferences. I talk, I write, I do interviews, I teach. And so I hear things. My ears to the ground, if you know what I mean. And I would say it's very dynamic. I would say that there is a lot going on both practically and in a lot of different areas. The other thing I find very encouraging, too, is that people are publishing the results of their work, either in their own books or online or through other things. The other thing that's also incredibly encouraging 
is that over the last 20 years or so, the academy, universities, have taken it very seriously in terms of this is a topic that is an area of human knowledge and exploration that needs to be taken seriously and with respect and deeply. And so what you're getting is you're getting PhD programs in certain universities that are digging into these topics and not necessarily as a true believer, Harry Potter-esque type, but it's like, okay, what were they saying? What were they doing? What is the context in which this was occurring? And where did it lead to? And what did they know? And then without going, oh, poor them, we know better now it's not this, how silly they were. But instead going, how did this fit in with how we understood what the universe and the world was? And what's coming out of this work is remarkable. Mm. There's one journal in particular, in terms of academic type papers, that's been around since the 20s and is very reputable. It is really good. Because what they'll also do is they'll translate original texts and publish them both within the journal and as special editions. And these are impeccable. And it's called Ambix, A-M-B-I-X. And I highly recommend if you're interested in any of this, go for it. Because this is where a lot of the, a lot of the new work is being done. And then it spills out into our world where we pick it up and then we actually take it a little further. So you'll find some interesting work there. But back to sort of like, I don't know what you want to call it, street alchemy. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are just doing it because we're obsessed and you know we can't do anything else. As I say, it's very dynamic. And in, in the United States, you could probably, you know, I mean, now with COVID, you're not hearing that much. You can go online, but I'm always suspicious of things online that I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, who are you and what are you really? But it doesn't take too long. You know, if you're looking for someone, honestly, Robert Bartlett, I would track him down and go, if you actually want to do some hands-on. In Europe, I would say in Europe, this is a, it's where it's kind of had mostly an unbroken tradition. And I would say mostly in the herbal uh, medicinal work. And this is coming out of Rudolf Steiner yeah. and Alexander von Bernis. Right? Alexander von Bernis is a contemporary German alchemist, died in the 60s or 70s, did most of his writing in the 30s, and wrote this thing on alchemy and medicine. And this is just picking up on a lot of the traditions given its own interpretation and use, but again, it's an innovative use at the time of what the theories of alchemy were. So you'll see people taking alchemical theories and practices and then giving them little twists and spins to kind of get it to work a little better, if you know what I mean, or work differently or find a discovery. For instance, here's something that Robert Bartlett did. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's a process in alchemy where you're purifying antimony. I'm sorry, <laughs> that's another story, but let me go to that one because it's another parallel further back that shows the same thing. There's a process, and this was done by Arrhenius Philolithes, a 17th century alchemist, and it was a way of purifying mercury that needed to be done in order to make the philosopher's stone. So to do that, you have to purify antimony first. So the tradition is you use iron, and then there's a stage where you use silver. Okay? Now, silver is expensive. 
So Aurelius Philolithes says to himself, hmm, what if I use copper, right? And he found, you know, all these things mythologically, contextually, canonically, where you could say, okay, yeah, you could do that. And then he did and he used it and it worked just as well. So you'll find these innovations in the past. What Robert Bartlett did was one of the traditional ways of making, it's known as the acetate path. There are two ways, many ways, in working the Philosopher's Stone. One of the ways is the wet way, and one of those branches involves acetic acid, which makes acetate salts. The lead acetate was the thing, child of Saturn, was the thing that was often used. Salt of Saturn, that was often used. And then doing a dry distillation on this and certain purifications and separations, you end up with what's known as the philosophical mercury, and you're on your way to making the philosopher's stone. What Robert did was he experimented with different metals, did certain tests with them, as you can if you're doing this process, and worked zinc and found that actually working with zinc acetate gave it actually a better yield. And the benefit of that is, is that, well, lead acetate is one of the most toxic compounds and zinc acetate isn't. So what that does now is opens up a much easier way for experimentation and further research to do since they seem to behave on the same way. So this is the kind of thing that you're seeing. It's people looking at what the texts say, but not going, oh, you know, we must slavishly follow this. I mean, yeah, you may want to slavishly follow it until you realize it doesn't work that way. And then you have to kind of try other things to get it to work. And then you go, oh, that's what they mean. But at the same time, it is. It's very dynamic. I don't know if there are any ongoing organizations now like there used to be. In the 70s, Frate Albertus had his Paracelsus Research Society that actually would have hands-on classes out in Utah. I don't know of any ongoing ones. If anyone was interested, like say in Germany, you should look, and this is a continuation of von Bernis's work. It's a laboratory called Soluna, and it's in Germany. And I, I believe it's still up and operative, and it's been around since von Bernis set it up, and you can get alchemical products. I think you can even maybe study with them, I'm not sure. But they would also be some, if folks were interested in kind of branching out further, and then the other thing, really, go to the big old imperial cities, sit in the strange cafes and listen. Mm. <laughs> and I tell you, you will hear things. <laughs> and then don't be afraid to ask. I am not kidding you. In Rome, I was a city, and then you overhear this one conversation. You start talking to somebody, and it's like, so you've been working on this for 30 years, really? Right over here? Oh, interesting. I do this. I... In Prague, same thing. It's just if you just are out there listening, sooner or later, you'll hear somebody. And they may be peripheral. They may not be deep in, but don't be afraid to talk. <laughs> Get off your phone. Stop looking at the screens eye to eye. That's where it's happening. Yes, I like it. And as you say, it can be tough to separate the truth from the fantasy, especially online sometimes. But yes. I am always curious how far this stuff can be taken. And this is something I bring up pretty much anytime we're talking about alchemy. I hope the audience doesn't get annoyed by me constantly referencing this. But I've seen this clip of an alchemist named Don Nance hold up a vial of a red liquid he called dragon's blood, which he says 
is a very pure liquid gold that's the purest thing he'd ever created, most concentrated, I should say. And he says that he gave just a few drops of the top water to a woman who then couldn't stop manifesting what was in her mind for several months, which of course can be a dangerous thing because the mind's tough to control. And I'm just curious what you think about that and any real connection between purified substances, effects on our consciousness, and what the upper limits are to what's actually possible with these really refined substances, mainly liquid gold. Quite honestly, I mean, I have no idea. <laughs> I hear things like this and I go, okay, here's the thing. In alchemy, there's a phrase that eventually got a kind of established around the 17th century, and it's a Latin phrase per ignam, right? And which means by fire or through fire. And the idea is if you go through this alchemical process and you actually make gold or you actually, it should, you should be able to put it through the fire. In other words, you should be able to, able to test this every which way, left, right, up, down, sideways, and backwards. And it should always do what it claims to be done. This is, by the way, is what they also say before taking on a teacher is that you should study them for 12 years, their morality, how they are, how they do. Is that who you want to be like? Mm. Right? So this is the same idea. I don't know. Someone chose me something I, I don't know. Who are they? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I'm a filmmaker, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay, sure. Why not? Right. The upper limit on it to me is, okay, fine. If this is real concretely, in other words, this isn't just a psychological psychic state that is being induced through a hyper placebo effect, which you cannot discount right? Okay. Where someone is anticipating this thing, and then all of a sudden, in the next few weeks, because of this, you know, psychic impact, they decide to get all their bullshit that they've been stopping themselves from doing out of their way and just let themselves live. And then all of a sudden, all these things that should have been happening that they've been keeping from happening is now happening, mm -hmm. right? Many ways you can start to talk about this, you know, but if what this is being said is that this compound taken induce this effect in this biological organism then that should be reproducible yeah right so show me <laughs> this is where it comes to because this type of thing isaac newton was put in charge of the mint right in england because he knew all the tricks of how to make something really really look like gold right I would say the vast, vast majority of their prohibitions against alchemy are because of counterfeiting. The burning of the books by Diocletian was because of the fact that they were afraid that this would be used and the currencies would get corrupted. Because if you ever read the phrase, and it's only a partial that usually gets translated about burn the books on these things, but then it goes ahead, but preserve the precious ones that deal with the philosophy kind of a thing like real alchemy, not this other stuff that's going to show you how to, you know, kind of corrupt metals to make them look like gold. So that, for one, there's this constant, constant awareness that there's a lot that can be done that someone not knowing necessarily what they're looking at to an audience that is wanting to believe they will see. And I'm not, again, show me. And this is where it comes down to. You're going to make a claim. You to me, you have to demonstrate it. If not, then I can say anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And then what does that do? 
I don't know. It's entertaining, but I, you know, I ain't got time for that shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. I only got a few more years on this planet, and you know, I got shit to do. There's <laughs> enough know? real like, shit that is also entertaining, and uh, exactly I'm just trying called to movies. Find that line. <laughs> yeah, called movies. You know, yes, there are things within this material practice that need investigation, that need looking into. Here's like one example of this, and what I mean by something that is reported in the literature meaning 17th century, that you've never heard of since, right? And so by Robert Boyle, Sir Robert Boyle, father of modern chemistry, you know, Boyle's law dealing with gases. He was an alchemist, actually. His teacher was Arrhenius Philolathes, except he didn't know it. He was Arrhenius Philolathes. His real name was George Starkey, and he worked as Robert Boyle's lab assistant. And it was Starkey who taught Boyle all of his alchemy and chemistry. And Robert Boyle was a true believer. He believed that if he could work towards the Philosopher's Stone, the invisible adepts would understand and would come to teach him, And which is actually what happened. George Starkey shows up at his lab and starts teaching him his alchemy. So this is Robert Boyle, right? He's no nonsense. He wants to make the Philosopher's Stone. So one of the processes in the stages of this is that, as I mentioned earlier, is this purification of mercury that happens through this amalgamation with antimony that has been highly purified beforehand. And it's that process that actually enables this animation of mercury to occur, as the alchemists would say. So he does this process, and he ends up with this mercury. And mercury will dissolve metals. It's how we get the almogans that the dentists used to stuff in our teeth. And so it's not unusual that mercury will dissolve gold. But what happens with this mercury is when Robert Boyle put the mercury in his hand and he puts the gold into it to see what happens and it dissolves, it exudes a great heat. And he calls this the exhalescence of mercury or the exhalescence of gold. And he writes about it in his collected works. He's repeated it. He's done it again and again. And every time, now it's like there's no known exothermic reaction between metallic mercury and metallic gold. So what's going on here? Now that's something in my mind. I it's like should be investigated, right? In a chem, and I believe this is part of the process that's going on in some of the universities, re-examining the alchemical works of Newton and the alchemical works of Boyle. But the idea that you're going to make a material that will change lead by melting lead, adding this powder to it, that will instantaneously change that lead into gold, and it's gold as we define gold, right? I don't think so. Again, you're going to have to show me. It's just like, okay, look at how we understand what gold is, right? Protons, neutrons, electrons, there's a whole deficiency or surplus of things, and we all know what happens with that, right? Great releases of energy and or not, but that doesn't happen. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm just saying, show me. Right. You're open to it, but it needs to be. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why am I? I it's, let me put it this way. The gold thing, the sparkly bits, things like that, isn't the main reason why I, I what interested me in alchemy. It wasn't like, oh, it was more understanding, wanting to get to what is this middle space that we occupy between the two infinities, right? The infinity of the small and the infinity of the large. 
Yes, and that actually gets to the heart of another question I had for you. But in the book, you write, the quest to turn lead into gold had many motivations. For some, it was a quest for wealth, but for others, it was a demonstration of profound insights into nature. Right. And I am interested in that later part. What has this pursuit taught you about nature and the structure of this mysterious reality we find ourselves in? You say in the book, nature is your true book. Study it well. And I like that. Yeah, also, that, that's an old traditional alchemical statement. I'm just kind of paraphrasing it in my own words. But yes, that's exactly it. In other words, observe and think. Observe and consider what is really in front of you, what is really going on. I mean, this comes right down to just contemporary. You can get into this with cognitive psychology and perception studies. Do you think you see the world as it really is? No, that's impossible. Right. <laughs> Just the physiology of the human eye itself narrows the electromagnetic spectrum down to nanometers. Right. And how wide is the electromagnetic spectrum? Right. So you're only seeing a slice. So this is what I'm saying. Already we're filtered. Already we're limited. But here we are in between. This is what alchemy is. It's an ascent through descent. And you'll find this concept in most mystical traditions. Dante. Right. He descends into hell before he ascends into the heavens. And this is what alchemy does. By studying matter, by understanding the creation, you are actually descending with your mind. You're penetrating into the depths of a matter. And you're wanting to understand how this creation unfolds. And then if you do, you study the other side, cosmology, which actually does get down into the tiny as well as the large you realize that all of this existence is just a very thin foam that we put together in our mind. Mm -hmm. And so you have eternities on both sides of this foam. That's what fascinated me. This is where I was as a kid. This is what I was kind of feeling like there's something more. I used to ask where I went at night, right? I can remember <laughs> it's like, you know, five, six years old asking my mom, like, where do I go at night? And she's like, what? You go to sleep. I said, no, 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 no. I know I go to sleep, but where do I go? And so what I would try to do then is stay up at night to see where I went. <laughs> <laughs> but I started lucid dreaming. That's one of the techniques of lucid dreaming. And I'll tell you, it tripped me out. Because I realized as I started going deeper and deeper into this, there is no I. You know what I mean? It's, it's reconstructed every morning. And it was like, whoa, man, that's like spooky shit. Yeah. I like that. I like that. And another thing that I found interesting is that more of this book is about alchemical medicine than I might have thought at first. An yes. example would be a quote from Antoine Joseph Pernity, yeah. where he says that alchemy is a science and art of making a fermentive powder, which transmutes the imperfect metals into gold and which is a useful remedy for all the natural illnesses of man, animal and of plants. Well, that's very interesting and a big, bold claim. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and I am of the opinion that Big Pharma and Rockefeller Medicine have done a lot to suppress natural cures or biology and this sort of stuff by capturing the schools and teaching aspiring minds that all of that was superstition and bullshit. But mm -hmm. what can be said about alchemy, spagyrics, and their effectiveness as a medicinal practice overall? Well, I would say that what spagyrics does, and this is the the alchemy of plants, let's say, and this is where this is where it's usually encouraged for most people who want to start the practice of alchemy to start, not to work with minerals, not to work with metals, 
mostly because those tend towards the poisonous and toxic side. Not to say there aren't any toxic and poisonous plants either, but there's more friendly things you can work with, right? like rosemary, lavender, etc., etc. So you would work with those herbs as an herbalist would prescribe an herb for medicinal purpose. It has that same use, or it has one of those same uses. What herbal alchemy does, or spagyrics does, that regular herbal tinctures don't do, is it uses all three components of the plant, of the object. So in alchemy, there are three principles that make up anything, mercury, sulfur, and salt. Okay, so in an herb, salt would be the body, so the mineral salts of the plant. The sulfur would be the essential oil of the plant. And then the mercury would be the spirit of the plant. In other words, what comes out of it as it decomposes. So it actually ferments and creates alcohol, spirit. And so the idea then is, by separating out these three things and purifying them, you potentize the effect or the impact of the herb, right? Mm-hmm. And the alchemical idea is, is that, well, you've preserved all three aspects of that being. And all three aspects are important, right? Not just the two. But there's actual some chemistry there at the same time, because it's the mineral salts that will form. The mineral salts tend to make essential oils and other type of organic chemicals more absorbable by the body. So there's that aspect of it as well, so that you are actually creating a more potent version of that plant, as opposed to just either making a tea or using an alcoholic tincture. And that's pretty much it for the medicine. I mean, it's not like there are miracle things in there. It's just like how you would use this as an herbal remedy and how you would use it in balance with things. And with that, you would need to have, obviously, in a an experienced herbal practitioner and you know someone that can work with it in a knowing way how it balances out and how they are but at the same time you know i would say this idea of herbal medicine has always been around will always be around and as big as big pharma is it's hard to avoid a lot of the herbal stuff i mean even if you wanted to i mean it's it's almost i would say it's as big if you know what I mean, on a street level. Because mm-hmm. I can't think of too many people that, you know, I think a lot of folks will gravitate more towards taking a peppermint tea for an upset stomach or something rather than a hardcore drug necessarily. I mean, I don't really know. You know? <laughs> it's just my impression, like living in New York, that a lot of folks, it's like, yes, you know, you will use prescription medicine because it can be really potent and it does work. The stuff I take from migraine now is amazing. (laughs) You know what I mean? Whereas like a lot of the herbal stuff I was taking for it just wasn't doing it. So there are those things. Life is a mixed bag. Everything in balance. It's balance is really what it comes down to, you know? Right on. And along the lines of medicine, probably my favorite chapter in the book is the Orum Portabile Oh, yes. Orum potabile, the drinkable gold. Yeah, Yeah. drinkable liquid gold with strong healing properties. Have you ever seen this in real life? Or do you know people who say they have? I mean, we can get colloidal silver. I make it. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a hard. There are recipes and processes for it. Here's the controversy. When you read alchemy, they talk about extracting the essence of gold, right? 
and they give the process for this. Now, if you follow that process exactly, what you end up with is a very refined colloidal gold. However, their language is such that they deny it. Their language is such that there's no residue of metal in there, right? It's only just the color. So maybe they did do something that only took the color, but I doubt it. <laughs> Here's the thing with oropotabulae. If you, and I've done this, I did this when I was in undergraduate school studying chemistry. In the library, there was a microfilm collection that had like, you know, books from since forever, like 1500s, a lot of them dealing with medicine, science, and alchemy. So I would go through them. In around the 17th century, Aurum Potaboli was the super medicine that everybody had to have. There are more things written on it. There are more recipes on this than you can imagine. A lot of the books were actually nothing more than like infomercials. You would actually start and read this as I've done two of them and then realize what a friggin' waste of time because huh. they keep promising well, here, here's the ideas, here's the theories. If you wait, we will get to this, you know, we'll show you how it can be made. Well, you know what? Come to the pharmacy at the sign of the duck, and we will provide you with the best oral potaboli in all of London. And it was just this huge, huge thing that everybody was after in making and promising. So what the idea is, is that Gold representing the heart and harmonizing with the heart, as the heart is the center of the body, the sun is the center of the solar system. It's another different idea because it's usually Earth is the center of the solar system, but in alchemical medicine, it's interesting that the sun is considered the center. And that's also gold. So the idea is, is that, well, by bringing gold in or the energies of gold into the body, you strengthen the heart and you strengthen these things. So the earliest Orum potabiles are very simple, very, very, very simple affairs, and they kind of evolve out of early Greek medicine and into Arabic medicine, where there was, if you wanted to, you could make what they called, what is it, spirit or, or iron water. Let's just call it that, iron water. And what you would do is you would heat up iron to red hot and you would extinguish it in water. And you would do that again and again. And what would happen is, is that the water would absorb the qualities of iron and you would give it to a patient to drink and they would absorb the qualities of iron. And that's actually true because what you are creating are certain salts of iron. And so you're boosting the person's iron in their blood, which is also probably what they needed. But that process, that idea of taking something hot and putting it into a medium is something that gets carried over. So you'll find this being done in Greco-Roman medicine. And then in alchemy, you find in one of the first writings dealing with the discovery of alcohol, 1300s by John of Rupasisa. He didn't invent it. He just writes about it. And he talks about this major, magnificent thing of putting the sun into the heavens like God did. And because the pure alcohol is like the quintessence, he has this whole argument as to why alcohol is the quintessence. And that by extinguishing gold in here, you are putting the sun into it. And this is a very early oral potabile. And he says, and if you're poor, what you can do is you can ask a rich man to borrow a gold coin and try to find a good white wine and extinguish it in that if you can't make a proper quintessence. And then it goes from there. 
this idea of putting gold into a medium. And there are recipes all over the place. Manfred Junius made one that was really nice. Manfred Junius is another alchemist around the same time period as maybe a little younger than Prat Albertus. Manfred died in 2006 in his 70s or so. He was a German but Ayurvedic doctor and wrote Plant Alchemy. Actually, he has a, his paperback is, I think it's called Spagyric alchemy at this point. I'm not sure what the new title is, but his is a major work on plants. Mm. His oral potabulae works with concepts out of Ayurvedic alchemy, Rasasastra, except that it's early European alchemy, but follows the same patterns. Meaning, for, for example, what Rasasastra does is it takes a metal, heats it, but will extinguish it in an organic matter, such as milk, other things. And then it forms basmas. It forms a salt that's very, anyhow, that's what that does. There are recipes out of the 17th century by an alchemist, German alchemist, and he uses cinnamon and gold. And cinnamon is, if you're familiar with affinities and things like that, cinnamon and gold are ruled by the sun. And so Manfred made this really beautiful orum potabili following this recipe. So that's really what it is. It's trying to find ways of getting gold into a solution that could be absorbed by the body. Huh. Right. And then not just by the physical body, by your soul, so to speak, as well. Right. Very, very interesting. I like that breakdown. Man. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. And as we're winding down here, talk to us about some of your purchasable works for people who are interested, the books, the zines, the website. What are you working on next? What should people know? Oh, sure. Well, if you're interested in the practical, the book we've just mostly been talking about, Practical Alchemy, uh, Weiss's publication, I don't have copies of it yet to sell through my website, but I would say order it through your bookstore. Right. I'm a big fan. This was they played very important roles in my my mystical upbringing are physical bookstores. These are places we congregate and get together. So if you can support them and order it through your local bookstore. That said, I would go directly to the publisher, Red Wheel Weiser. And if you just go Practical Alchemy, the book will show up and you'll see Red Wheel Weiser. As you notice, I'm not encouraging the uh, Amazon, but if you must, you must, because we all live where we live and do what we must do. So that's the practical alchemy. All of my other work is available through my website. For those listening in Europe, Treadwell's Bookstore in London sells my work, The Alchemy, Poetry of Matter, and the Zines. If you're in Canada, Anathema Publishers actually distributes my work in Canada, the zines, the poetry of matter, and these things. So the book, Practical Alchemy, was, say, part one. Alchemy, Poetry of Matter is actually the next book there, and that's available through my website. All my zines are available through the website, and that website is keprepress.com, and that's K-H-E-P-R-I, press, P-R-E-S-S, all one word, keprepress.com. Press.com. And at the bottom of the homepage is a sign up thing for my mailing list because I give talks. I will be giving a talk on Splendor Solis, one of the most magnificent alchemical 
manuscripts. I'm giving a four-part course on that through a place called Morbid Anatomy Library. Hmm. So if you go to them or sign up on my mailing list, I will be sending out announcements for that course and other things that I'm doing. The next work, I have a book I just finished and I'm supposed to be getting that to the publisher, but due to COVID, things have been delayed and we're kind of working out some details on it. But one way or another, that will be out in a year. And then I'm working on this other larger piece dealing with music that will be musical. And that's in a very early stage of building. This is where the Xenon Alchemy and Music started. This is part of like the foundational research roots I'm building. And then from there, I'm taking off and trying to create something. So if anybody's interested, take a look at Alchemy and Music, the zine, and you'll see what I'm up to. I lay out very specific ideas in there in terms of the impact on the body and how this can be considered and then how that might be used for a music of ascent. So that's actually what I'm working on next. Nice. And then the other one is with a friend of mine who you may want to interview at some point once this is done. <laughs> okay. It's a graphic memoir of the early days of magic in New York City in the 1970s as the OTO and other things were getting off the ground, and he was kind of in the middle of it. Anyhow, it's been kind of fun, but that's wow. another story for another time. Yeah. Does that have a title yet? Right now we have a working title. This is called 1978 because mm. that's the year of the event. I hope I'm not saying too much, but it started out as just kind of like this funny little thing he was doing that we thought would be like maybe a 30 page zine. But as we said, as I kept asking him questions about, so what were they doing? It just kept opening up and it's like, well, you know, that's got to be a scene. And then right now we're like 150 pages, 200 pages or something, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I love it. Keep me posted on that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I definitely will. I definitely <laughs> will. This has just been, it's just been a hoot. That's all I have to say. Seems like you got so many things going on. O'Brien of many trades. Yes, yes. Well, it's all, all relates to this one focus of, you know, of what the alchemical process is all about. Mm -hmm. That's the heart of it. And I know you're an East Coast guy, but I'm just curious, any notable West Coast esoteric bookstores we should help keep alive? Oh, yes. Yeah. So what I really know, I don't know anything so much in LA or San Francisco that you should be able to find. Seattle, Mortlake and Sons. He also has a website. He also publishes which is even more important, like really key works and really beautiful editions and also very affordable editions. And that's known as Ouroboros Publishing or Ouroboros Books. And that's spelled as you would spell it, I guess. <laughs> oh, don't make me spell right, it. O-U-B-O-R-O. Right, right. Yeah, Ouroboros Books. Look <laughs> that up. You'll find it. You should also interview him. Um, no, really. William Kiesel. He is phenomenal. A lot of his work is on Kabbalistic, sigil magic, magical books and grimoires is his specialty. He's really knowledgeable, practitioner, articulate, and, you know, a good friend, as if you can't tell. Yes. But even if I hated the motherfucker, <laughs> I'd still say the same thing. Uh, I love it. No, he's really good. He's really good. I think your audience would dig him. Yes. Well, just like one book opens the next, every interview <laughs> yeah. I do ends up with three or four more guests I should follow yeah. up on. So yeah, I got work yeah. to do, but this has been a true pleasure, man. I'm really impressed with the depth of your knowledge 
and I appreciate the sharing of all this insight that you've gathered over the years. You are the man and do take care out there. Thanks so much. This is, I've had a lot of fun. So hope to catch you in the crossroads. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing stuff. Really enjoyed this one. Loved reading the book. A nice, quick alchemical overview with some detailed, practical first steps for those who want to dip their toes in. For me, practical alchemy is kind of like trying to learn guitar now at 36. It's not really going to work out. I have a lot of respect for people who have developed that skill, but I think the time has passed for me to be able to start down such a complex path requiring so much dedication because a lot more time and focus is needed than I probably have at this point. Which is why it's so important to make sure kids develop skills between 5 and 15, because after 15, they're getting into high school drama, getting ready to drive, But between 5 and 15, no kid has anything to do but develop a talent. Art, music, chef skills, alchemy, I guess. They're just sitting around the house with all the time in the world. Don't let them waste it all on some stupid iPad. (laughs) Sorry. But yes, alchemy is a never-ending well of interesting content. And what I like most about it these days is probably the philosophy and worldview of the alchemists because they're certainly closer to the real deal than the materialists. I also love the general idea of watching nature and letting it guide your processes, your technology, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know if matter is truly as pliable as they insinuate in some of the old texts, but we really wouldn't know because we just don't try anymore. I also do like the idea of an underground alchemical revival. Maybe we're contributing to that now, but big thanks to Brian. He really knows a lot about this stuff. It takes years of dedication, and he obviously has a passion for it too. And higher side news, we did it. After 10 long years, we had a local meetup, and it went really well. There were some strange and suboptimal aspects to it, but overall it was great. Seems more like a subject for me to get into more on the next joint session, but my special lady and I both sort of agreed that if we had 10 people, we'd consider it a success. If we had 20 people, we'd be pretty impressed. And when everyone cycled through and it was all said and done, we probably had over 40 people. I've got 33 names and emails on my local group sign-up. What a number, right? And I'm sure at least seven people or so didn't put their info down. So, yeah, 40. It's just a sign of the times. People are hungry to meet other like-minded people. And if this audience is largely like myself, we're hungry for topics like today's show. It's hard not to obsess over the power grab and society crumbling down around us. But when we push through to the dominant of wider inclusion, I think these are the kinds of topics that will get us there. Energy flows where attention goes, they say. And we should focus more of our mental attention on the stage after this one, on the world we want to build, and maybe we can manifest it a bit faster. I hope so, because it's really the only way I know how to navigate this. Alternate back and forth 
when there's new news, rather than just obsess episode after episode. It's nice to get away from the narrative for a little bit. I don't want to be so sad all the time, you know? So we mix it up. And of course, if you enjoyed the first hour, we got a whole second hour for those who become Plus members. But today we talked about making a hermunculus, which I will say, when a person has written about this, I almost always ask, but I've never heard it broken down the way Brian did, where it makes a lot of sense to me now why they thought they could do this at the time, semen and menstrual blood. Not my favorite flavors, but an ambitious soup of creation, so they thought. We also talked about the story of the mandrake root, the hermunculi recipes, and the strange correlations to modern cloning principles, the golem, a man of clay brought to life by the power of the word, Brian's translations of the emerald tablet, cosmology and the flow of energy from Saturn to the Earth, alchemy, sound, and music, power and the esoteric toolbox, and the provocative, provocative idea of powerful people hiring magical practitioners and alchemists because they want the benefits without doing the work themselves. I, for one, am leaving today very entertained and informed, and I'm sure I'm not alone. If you like this show, toss me the $8 for a membership. You don't have to stay signed up forever. But if we can tip $8 for a meal, I don't think it's too much to ask for the brain food that is THC. And you get twice as much for your trouble. But you know the deal, so I guess that's it. Much love to all you guys. Keep your heads up. Be the change and all that. Make love, not conflict. And uh, we will overcome, I guess. Dig into Brian's work if you want more. But I've done my part. Your move, hermunculi makers, gold bar fakers, and keepers of the true alchemical secrets. Your fucking move. This is important, hear what I said. I'm trying to tell you. It's not paranoia, not in my head. It's just the hard truth. Knocked on your door while I still can. Ask you a question Cause I know your head Is still in the sand Don't be sheep to your slaughter For the rest of your life Oppressed, oppressed But you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed Until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you see that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit
but you're getting woke You say you don't want to be stressed until the day you die Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that we're so screwed? Don't you know we're our kung food? Can't you just admit we're screwed? I'm gonna tell you this anyway It's a scary dark world Tough luck, my friend Did you get the memo? Can't you say that? 